0: It's July sixteenth, two thousand twenty-one. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. A lot of news to cover today. In fact, so much so you're going to have to take a break and intermission. Maybe get yourself a drink midway through this. But I'm going to talk about a lot of things that you shouldn't do. So this one is entitled "What Not to Do." So let's start with "Don't miss." What do you not want to miss? Well, you may not want to miss the fact that rheumatoid arthritis affects the feet, often first, sometimes preferentially. A nice study out of Italy, I think it was, looked at 100 consecutive RA patients who presented to them. In those patients, the foot was the first manifestation of rheumatoid arthritis in 29% of individuals. You might imagine that most of those cases were involving the forefoot. That was almost 60%. But hindfoot, 27%. And midfoot, the tarsus, um, was 14%. Now, we'd often use forefoot, midfoot, hindfoot. Hindfoot would be um, heel, calcaneus, talus. Midfoot would be tarsus. And forefoot would be, of course, the MTPs and or toes. So what else should you not miss You may not want to miss the opportunity to talk about pregnancy with your patients. Megan Klaus's group did a nice survey, only 30 patients, but a good survey, where they asked patients about their feelings on discussions and information between them and their doctor regarding sex and reproductive health. The take-homes were, number one, they really want you to initiate the discussions on sexual matters and reproductive health. If you don't bring it up, who's going to bring it up? You're the one who knows most about their condition and also about how their condition and or medicines are going to affect the pregnancy. Next, they want want clear and concise and accurate uh, and probably repetitive information about pregnancy and the risks of infertility and the risks of the drugs that you're using on their future fertility. That's a very important thing. You know, with a brand-new rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis patient, if they're, it's a young woman, a woman of childbearing potential, um, not the first visit, but definitely second visit, we start getting into things like contraception, plans for pregnancy, because it's on their mind. They're thinking, oh, my God, am I going to pass this on to my offspring? The third is that they want sort of a holistic approach, and that means treating the whole patient, involving other doctors. Fourth, they do not want to be the intermediary between you and the OBGYN, and you know that's the case because you don't talk to the OBGYN. Maybe you do, and if you do, you're a very good rheumatologist with a very good relationship with your OB. Most of us, we live in a bubble. We often say... We hand over the patient when the patient gets pregnant to the OB and let them make decisions. Again, there needs to be some uh, integration of care in those patients who wish to become pregnant. Next category, don't use. Things that you probably shouldn't be using. Um, Just a recent report out of Annals Internal Medicine looked at 185 patients with COVID hospitalized and they were randomized to receive either remdesivir hydroxychloroquine or placebo and then usual care guess what remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine had no effect no effect on viral clearance no effect on symptom duration on mortality on the need for mechanical ventilation you know if you look at the data on remdesivir that and it is fda approved you know it's like just this much better not much like a few shorter days to discharge, we do know that hydroxychloroquine is a total bust. No one should be using it. It's really got no benefit, despite all the talk. Um, So those drugs, in my view, are out and shouldn't be used. Uh, Another interesting um, meta-analysis, systematic review of muscle relaxant use for low back pain, especially acute low back pain, basically shows totally worthless Uncertain benefit, small magnitude of effect, not clinically important magnitude of effect, and that's just in the first two weeks when it's most needed. So we tend to use muscle relaxants because we're in the MSK business, but, uh, you know, we probably shouldn't be, or we should think of a new game. You know, I think if you're using muscle relaxants to treat something, it's a little bit like chiropractic and physical therapy. It's what you do while the patient's getting better on their own. And that's kind of what muscle relaxants do, and they serve as a sort of a surrogate reminder, like not to go bronco busting or kite boarding or whatever it is that they did that led to their back problem. The problem is, it's like a multi-million dollar industry. Thirty million prescriptions in 2016, um, and again, this is not small data. This is based on 49 trials over 6,000 patients. Muscle relaxants, total bust. Um, I tend to use less of them as I've gotten older and maybe, I mean a big maybe, a little bit wiser. Corticosteroids in patients who may become operative candidates for, especially knee replacements, that was looked at in a recent study, Um, and they showed in this study, we've reported previously results that said if someone got a corticosteroid injection within six months of their arthroplasty, they had a higher risk of postoperative, perioperative infections. We had another report that said three months was the, there was a clear cut risk. This report says three months, but the data is really good for an injection within two weeks. The point being, don't do intra-articular corticosteroid injections in someone who you think is going to need a arthroplasty in the near future. Um, Lastly, what else should you not do? You should not use steroids as analgesic therapies. Doesn't that seem reasonable? But yet we know anyone who gets steroids, they all get better. And we're, why are they getting better? Not always because of their uh, of the anti-inflammatory effect of steroids. It's a profound analgesic effect. A meta-analysis of 33 trials, looking, I believe this was just in RA, show that corticosteroids are analgesic, um, especially in the first three months of use. That there's a mean drop um, in uh, on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale for pain, there's a 12-millimeter drop on average. That's about a 10% improvement just from steroids. And that was fairly consistent. However, over time, that benefit wanes to 6 by 6 months. So, do you really want to give steroids for the analgesic effect? Can you not do better with some other drugs? It's a big discussion. but And obviously, most rheumatologists understand that. I don't think the mis- that most... Um, the rest of the world does as well. You know, anyone we give steroids to, we say, you know, acutely wonderful, chronically dangerous, and here are all the horrible things that will happen if you stay on steroids a long time. Everyone should have that discussion when they're using steroids. Next, what should we not stop? What should we continue? Well, telehealth continues to be a big part of rheumatology. In fact, a recent Doximity a survey that was published I think the survey ended September of 2020, but I believe these numbers have continued that the telehealth is uh, at least a $29 billion industry in 2020. The top 10 medical specialties are, and let me give you a hint here. Rheumatology is number two. What's number one ahead of rheumatology. That's right. Endocrinology, another cognitive discipline. Number two, rheumatology, number three, GI, number four, renal, renal, the rest don't really count. So we're number two and trying harder. So don't stop hel- uh, uh, telehealth. And there's recent um, um, legislation by CMS. Another report came out. CMS is proposing to extend Medicare coverage of telehealth services uh, until 2023. They put a good word in for phone-only telehealth for mental health. If you're, We've talked about this in the past. If you're doing phone telehealth, You're really screwing up. That's not really good telehealth. There's a lot you're missing. Um, Please don't do it. You need at least video. You need to be good at it. They are also proposing a a 3.7% reduction in payments um, because of budgetary issues. And that's going to be debated at the level of Congress and whatnot. But at least right now, there's no reason to stop doing telehealth. I'm going to end with a few FYI's, did you know, information from the literature this week. N. Haynes did a survey showing that the risk of psoriasis in the general population is 3%. 3%. That equates to about 7.5 million Americans. Um, It was more common in non-Hispanic whites. Big surprise there. But the interesting thing about this that I thought was worth mentioning here is that the risk of psoriasis actually has not changed um, since 2003. 18 years, psoriasis remains a consistent risk in the population. Not going up, not going down. What does that tell you? I don't really know. Let's leave it to the dermatologist to let let them tell us what it means. Um, Yesterday's uh, New England Journal had, I thought, an interesting report of a trial done with a JAK inhibitor, Ruxilotinib, done for uh, myelofibrosis and hematologic indications they gave it to refra- uh, steroid refractory uh, graft-versus-host disease. And they showed a significant benefit at week 24. Um, this is a phase 3 trial, almost 230 patients. Ruxolotinib, 50% versus 26% in placebo. That was highly significant. Why am I telling you this as a rheumatologist? Because you don't treat much GVHD. Well, GVHD and scleroderma, You know, a lot of parallels have been shown between them in the past. And there is the report, if you can think back to last year's ACR, I believe, um, of tofacitinib, a report out of Russia. A fairly interesting trial, tofacitinib working in scleroderma at cutaneous manifestations. So might there be a role for JAK inhibition in patients with systemic sclerosis? Based on this New England Journal report, I say might could be. That's how we speak here in Texas. Hydroxychloroquine prolongs SLE survival. Everybody knows that. Everybody should know that. A recent report, 6,000 incident SLE patients um, compared those who died and those who lived. And guess what? Those who lived were more likely to live if they were, in fact, on hydroxychloroquine, where hydroxychloroquine gave at least a 50% reduction in um, uh, mortality. Uh, And so, again, I think that that's important. More importantly, people who stopped their hydroxychloroquine, had an increase in mortality 2.5 fold. Um, So I think that's important. Now why people um, stopped their hydroxychloroquine and had a higher risk, they call that possibly a sick stopper effect. Um, It could also be that they just had really severe disease and hydroxychloroquine wasn't controlling them. There are a lot of factors here, but again, more evidence in favor of hydroxychloroquine. That becomes important a few abstracts forward in this particular report. Lupus patients undergoing renal transplant for end-stage renal disease. Do you know the data on that? Well, we put up a report this week of 185 patients at a single center showing basically very good patient survival after transplant at 1, 3, 5, and 10 years of 88, 82, 78, and 67%. So really, for up to five years, it's over 80%. And then they tend to tail off. But these are not surprising. These are patients who've had probably bad lupus and multiple medical problems. Um, Graph survival was equally really good. At one year, 93%. At At three years, 89%. At five years, 87%. At 10 years, 89%. So lupus patients who actually go forward to renal transplant tend to fare very well. And those that were on immunosuppressives actually did even better. Interestingly, you would think that if you give a transplant to a lupus patient, what's the chance that lupus is going to affect that new transplanted kidney? In fact, of the 185 transplants, there are only two cases of recurrent lupus nephritis. Again, strong data in favor of renal transplant in our patients who may need that. There was a New England Journal report from last week or the week before about the effects of IL-6 On hospitalized COVID patients, it's a meta-analysis looking at ceruliumab and tocilizumab. 27 RCTs, over 10,000 patients, 28-day all-cause mortality was lower with IL-6 use, but only a little bit, like 14% lower. Um, A little bit better, 22% lower if they were also on steroids. Overall, mortality rates were 22% if you're on an IL-6 inhibitor and 25% with usual care. A little bit of benefit. And that kind of reflects what you've seen in the many reports we've had since March of 2020. Some studies have look, looked good for IL-6 inhibition. Others have looked not, not so good. And I think that some of the data here, the, 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 the New England Journal articles talk about who should be getting um, this. It's early disease, patients not yet on a, on a ventilator. Um, patients who are on supplemental oxygen and not yet on a ventilator, patients who have high inflammatory indices, those patients tend to do a little bit better with IL-6 inhibition. Um, I missed a report from a few months ago on nail psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. This is from Phil Meese, a meta-analysis of um, what was done in the, in the um, corona psoriasis registry showing that... Psoriasis patients who have uh, psoriatic arthritis patients who have nail involvement, nail pits, onycholysis, dystrophic changes, tend to have much more severe disease. No matter how you measure it, disease activity, number of joints, number swollen and tender, functional outcomes, work outcomes, they do worse. So having nail disease is something that we should be looking for as rheumatologists and factoring that into your severity index as to how you're going to treat those patients. I have two more reports, one on arthritis as a harbinger of pediatric cancer. Um, I stole that title actually from uh, an old article that I liked about arthritis or musculoskeletal symptoms as a harbinger for cancer in adults. And so this was a nice study that was done in Italy, um, Prospective, multicenter, they enrolled kids with a new diagnosis of JIA and kids with a new diagnosis of cancer. Overall, almost 2,000 patients were enrolled. Of the patients they enrolled, and most of them were with cancer, um, musculoskeletal symptoms were seen in 60, and I'm sorry, in 25% of those patients. Of those patients, um, you know, a subset of those, 64% of those, were diagnosed with a firm form of some kind of arthritis. So what tumors could present as arthritis? Again, this is in the pediatric population, malignant bone tumors, and 80% of those had bone and or joint symptoms. Others here are not so common. Langerhans, histiocytosis, half of them. Uh, leukemia, a third of them. Soft tissue sarcoma is 24%. Neuroblastoma is 19%. Had musculoskeletal presentations. The most common presentations were joint pain and long bone pain. Uh, joint pain outnumbered long bone pain, 61 35%. The pattern of involvement was usually monarticular or oligoarticular, equally split, both being about 45%, with hip and knee, being those common presentations. Polyarticular presentations, uncommon. The point of this particular report was kids who present with musculoskeletal symptoms due to cancer do not look like JIA. JIA being um, persistent complaints, inflammatory joint swelling, synovitis, small joint involvement, uh, pattern of involvement in polyarticular or oligo that goes to polyarticular is tends to be what you see with JIA compared to cancer-related MSK. Predictors of a cancer were long long bone pain, 87-fold odds ratio, weight loss, 60-fold, thrombocytopenia, monarticular involvement, hip involvement, and being male would be features that you would maybe worry about. I'm going to close with a lot of discussion, um, and I'm going to refer you probably to Twitter to look at some of the data about this. But I posted, again, another article I missed back in March. Um, this was on, from the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, where they studied the risk of major congenital malformations in, in lupus patients who receive hydroxychloroquine in the first trimester of their pregnancy. So they found um, a, a total of 200 and two, – sorry, 2,000 hydroxychloroquine-exposed pregnancies and it compared that to 3.2 million non-exposed pregnancies and the rate of congenital malformations with hydroxychloroquine in the first trimester use was 55 cases per 1000 but if you were not on uh, hydroxychloroquine unexposed it was 35 that's about a 51% increase this created a lot of, of discussion about these kind of studies. This is not randomized data. This is population based fishing for a p-value kind of data. And we know hydroxychloroquine is incredibly safe. We know that we recommend hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy because the outcomes are great for the mom. If the mom's great, then the baby's great. You know, there's less problems with congenital heart block in patients who are row and la positive. There's less problems in antiphospholipid women who, who are going to get pregnant. So it was a strong recommendation from the AC reproductive health guidelines report about the use of hydroxychloroquine. This sheds a little bit of a stain on that data. But if you look at some of the Twitter discussion about this, this drove most rheumatologists a bit crazy. You should look at um, uh, Mike Putman's uh, comments and go to his website, Evidence-Based Rheumatology. Mike is a stickler for detail, design, Uh, statistics and he really shoots some good holes in this particular report the one thing that might be worth noting is that there was a higher association with doses higher than uh, 400 milligrams and higher now why they chose 400 milligrams and higher as opposed to 401 milligrams and higher i don't know but you know that's one of the downsides of this particular report so a lot happening in, uh, in Rheumatology and on the website. Go and check out these citations and more. We look forward to talking to you next week on the podcast. Take care.